0: They have been full and it has been a rich, rich time. Charles, you going to come and share a little bit first? Why don't you come? Give him a big hand, would you? That's a big step. Thank you. That's a big step up. My, oh, my. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Fellowship. If I were at home, I would be saying good morning, Emmanuel's church so I feel right at home. Well, I am happy to be with you. I want Dottie to share the lion's share this morning because I asked her to give me virtually all of the time tonight, so we traded off. <laughs> I was so overwhelmed when I was preparing uh, this morning for tonight. I, and again, it's not anything that has to do with me. It has to do with the material I just sense that if you will be here tonight, you will be amazed at what the Scripture says regarding the last days and how those things are being worked out upon the face of the earth. So I welcome you very heartily and sincerely in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I had a strange experience, and I will yield to this impulse. By the way, at home, I'm always used to having something under my Bible so I can hold it up. I'm getting used to your platform. That's a step up. I want you to know. (laughs) Dottie and I were talking about how we were going to get her up here. (laughs) All right. The strange thing is I thought to myself, what would I want somebody to share in Emmanuel's church in Silver Spring if they came in from the outside? So I would like to give you just briefly the scripture that I'd like to hear articulated in our own midst. It's a very self-serving scripture, but you'll understand when I get into it. It's an admonition that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. He says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, why would I want that shared in our midst? If an outside speaker came in, why would I feel free to share that in your midst? Because those who are in leadership carry a burden that few people can even understand. Nothing happens to anyone, if you are a true shepherd... If you are a true minister of the gospel, if you are a true servant of the Lord, nothing happens to anyone in the church that does not affect you deeply. And for that reason, those that are in leadership in this house are to be loved and respected and honored because of the fact that they carry in the presence of the Lord such a weight. Sometimes we take the leadership, we take the ministry for granted, and we need to be called every once in a while back to the scriptural admonition. So I want to encourage you, and I'm sure you're doing this already. We certainly sense that in our own church, that we are loved and cared for and respected. But I want to encourage you that even more than what you are doing, that you would do 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you. And that includes not only the pastoral ministry, but any other ministers that are laboring, deacons, elders, those who really carry the leadership of the church on their shoulders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And you know, the last statement, live in peace with each other, is the outcome of that when we are respectful of those that are in leadership, when we are respectful of those who carry the burden of God upon their heart for the people of God, when we are respectful of them, we will live at peace in the body of Christ. So I commend that to you. I was not asked to say that. No one put me up to it, but the Holy Spirit did. I thought to myself, that's what I would want somebody to articulate if they came into our fellowship And again, not that we are not doing that, but we could do even more. I could do it even more in relation to the other ministers and pastors in our church. Well, the next thing I wanted to do, the last thing, is I wanted to share something graphically. I've asked Aaron to uh, put these slides up in just a moment. Well, we can have the first one up there. Good. Jesus said in Mark 16... Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And then in verse 20, it says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. I sense you are a church that has a heart for missions. And today, especially on St. Patrick's Day, we need to be aware of the fact that Patrick had a great heart for missions. He came to the island of Ireland, found it basically pagan, and his biographer states that when he left it, it was basically Christian. He speaks of the thousands that he had begotten in Christ, and he speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit that worked through him with signs and wonders. And so I said, well, tell me about the revival among the Koya people. Well, he had gone up there to minister at the request of the brother on the right. I don't remember his Hindu name, but his Christian name is now Elia, which means Elijah. He had come at the request of Elijah because Elijah heard that Pastor Daniel had such a burden for the Koya people. And so he invited them to see what God was doing. And if I could have the next slide... This is hard to see, but in the thicket is Aelia. before he became a Christian. He's actually hard to see. I'm sorry that that is the case, but he's actually dressed in something like a loincloth. He has a bow and arrow, and he's in the thicket, and he's preparing for a kill. And so he was a real jungle man. And my question to Daniel was, how did Aelia get to be Jungle Jim converted to Jesus Christ? I mean, what happened? Well if we continue on in the little slide production here is Alia his lovely wife next to him and in the back are half of the pastors 20 some pastors he's actually raised up and trained 41 pastors because the move of the holy spirit has been so powerful 3000 koya have come to know the lord so it's no longer an unreached people group amen <laughs> He's actually helping to fulfill what Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Well, these are about half of the pastors that he has trained because not only was there a revival in that particular city or town, rather, there were all these satellite groups roundabout that sprung up miraculously by the power of God coming upon them. And so Elia has been very diligent uh, in training them. When I arrived in India, they gave me a copy of my book on Ephesians High Adventure translated into Telugu. I'm quite excited about that. So I presented the only copy I had to Alia because he's Telugu speaking, and he was all excited to get something in the Telugu language and immediately wanted me to come and visit him. So we'll tell you a little bit more about that. The next slide, please. This is maybe hard to see, but this is a picture of one of their meetings, jam packed with people praising and worshiping the Lord. And the next picture, this is me praying with Aaliyah. What happened was I had asked Daniel, the guy on the left, I'd asked him, how did Aaliyah get saved? How did he get changed from being the jungle man to such a mighty man of God? And Daniel said, I really don't know. And I said, well, I'd like to know. Can you find out for me? He calls Aaliyah on the telephone. By the way, India is the new Silicon Valley. I have never seen such amazing technology. Calls Alia on the phone, and Alia comes an eight-hour journey by bus just to meet with me and tell me his story. So when I met Alia, is only about this tall. Most of the Koya are short, and if you look at his face, you can tell he's a Koya. So I had the privilege of praying with Aaliyah. I consider that an honor to be able to pray with this man of God. And so the first question I asked him, and he speaks only Telugu, so it had to be translated. I said, Aaliyah, how did you find Jesus? I am interested in knowing. He said, well, I was in witchcraft. I was in spiritism. My father had that. He conveyed it down to me. He said, I became a communist. I was recruited by the communists because I could sing and play, and they wanted my gift to be able to draw people to their rallies. And he said, in the process, my wife, you saw her in the picture, my wife was pregnant, became pregnant. So we thought. But we sensed as time went along that something went wrong. And so I brought her to the hospital, the hospital that they had given land for for the Koya people. I brought her to the hospital. They examined her. And they said to me, She is not pregnant, she has a tumor. And then they came back with the verdict after they examined her more thoroughly that the tumor was cancerous. And they said to Alias, She is going to die. And Alias said, She died. She died at the hospital. And I brought her back to our village. You know, Hindus primarily cremate. She was laid out, ready for her fun. Aelia's mother had just received Christ. She had just become a born-again Christian. Now, Aelia knew nothing about nothing. She carried with her a little vial of oil, sprinkled Aelia's wife with the oil, and she prayed a simple prayer in the name of Jesus. And Aelia looked at me and said, Jesus raised her from the dead. Needless to say, Ailey was completely blown away. (laughs) Jungle Jim was transformed in that moment by the power of God, and a revival broke out in that area that has now brought 3,000 koya to the Lord. It says the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. I began to understand something of how the Lord Jesus in these last days, will accomplish what he said for us to do from the very beginning. How he will accomplish it through us. By signs and wonders that every nation, people, tribe, tongue, and language will come to know him. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, then the end will come. So, you who have given yourself, I see it on the back wall, to missions, know that you do well in giving yourself to the evangelization of the world. So, Father, I bless this congregation. I bless its leadership. I bless the people that gather in this house to worship you. I bless their outreach, their heart for reaching a lost world, beginning with right here and extending to the far ends of the world. And I pray, Lord, that you will continue to download your blessing in this place. May there be the increase of the grace of God on the left and on the right. So, Father, I declare a blessing in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Father, for what you are doing through your precious Son, Jesus, in winning the nations to yourself. We honor you, and we give you thanks in his lovely name. And bless Dottie, Lord, as she comes to share with us. Amen. Amen. And she is here, <laughs> the woman of my life.
1: <laughs> Amen. Amen. I bought him that vest. Isn't it sharp? Hey, he's St. Patty's Day through and through. <laughs> I was thinking, and I had mentioned this to the women last yesterday, um, I actually met Charles 62 years ago this month. And uh, so we have a long history together. Of course, we were very young when we met. You understand that. But I was thinking that the night I was converted was the night that I met him 62 years ago. He just had celebrated his birthday, and he had turned 14. And he was preaching from the book of Romans and the book of Acts. Scared me half to death because I thought didn't know anything about the scriptures and wondered where this fiery, radical person came from and how did I relate to him. Well, I met him that night. And uh, 12 and a half years later, he became my husband, and I, I was looking at him as he was sharing with you, and I thought, oh, Lord, what a ride these 50 years of marriage have been. And all I can say, and I don't know the mystery of the human heart, but uh, we were converted in an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in that outpouring of the Holy Spirit back in 1951, a whole group of us were were taken into the kingdom back in 1951 and didn't know how we got in there because none of our parents were believers. None of our parents, except for one, uh, even went to church. They all sent us because it was the right thing to do. And we don't remember hearing the gospel in our wonderful Dutch Reformed church. And the Lord just came and sovereignly went through and went and said I gotcha I gotcha I gotcha and uh, we look and we sometimes look at one another and think how did he do that how did he so capture our hearts that all the days that we have lived we have loved him even when it felt like we were walking through hell On earth, he still had done something within the soil of our hearts that no matter what, and I call it, we were ruined for the Lord. And so my prayer, especially over the young people, is my God, give them such an encounter with you that they are forever ruined. I say that over my children, and uh, now they're all adults, and said to them, I just have prayed the Lord would ruin you, that when you tried the world, it would be so tasteless to you that you would realize that there's only one way to live... And that is radically, passionately for the Lord. And I would say by his grace, uh, 62 years later, we are probably more scary and more radical than we were when we started. Huh? We, and you know what? As you get older, you can afford to say things that you'd never get away with when you had brown hair. Or I will tell you, I am thrilled with that opportunity, you know, because they have to respect us. And we can just tell them where it's at, you know. So, at any rate... Well, I do trust that you will be with us tonight. Uh, I can say this objectively, that my husband is one of the best Bible teachers in the nation. And I, uh, I have listened to him for 62 years. I'm his best disciple. And we have such a passion for revival, such a passion for understanding the times that we're living. And I mentioned the other night that as I have traveled, and I'm only back a little bit over a week... From Israel, Ireland, and Scotland, I was gone over a month, and that's going to sort of uh, weave itself into what's on my heart this morning, because you cannot get the wider picture of what God is doing in the earth and remain the same. And I declare it without a vision, the people perish. And there is something beyond our own personal needs and our own personal wants. There is something on his agenda today that when we begin to hear his voice and his strategy... For the hour in which we live, we will say to the Lord, here I am. I yield to you. We sang it. And I thought, Lord, as we're singing these words that I'm yours, I yield to you. Fill me. Use me. Lord, may you take us seriously in this hour. In light of the hour in which we're living, how then do we live? And you you are going to hear, even as we go through the book of Daniel, What a phenomenal hour to be alive in. I trust that you are a student of the scriptures. You are a student of the Old Testament, the New Testament. You're a student of world events. And that you are a student of what is it that God is saying today. Do you remember how often the Lord said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church today. And so our cry is, Lord, open our ears. May we not be as those who in the days of Noah did not know what hour they were living in until the judgment actually came. And so we pray that we will be of those who are like the sons of Issachar, who understand the times in which we live and have such a sense of how we ought to walk and what God is doing and how do we live in accord. Well, I say that and I would like you to turn with me to 1 Peter. And uh, interestingly, this came to me so strongly since these things are true. And by the way, I will tell you, uh, spending all of that time in Israel from Tiberias to Beersheba uh, is an absolute amazing experience. Well, before I left to go into the nations and I was gone for a month, the Lord said to me, listen to what I'm doing in the nations. Listen to the leaders in the different countries you go to because you are going to see that I am working all over the earth to accomplish my purpose and I want to weave that in with some of the things I'm going to share. At any rate, First Peter is written 30 years after that experience, about 30 years when uh, the Lord said to Peter or he said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And, you know, they came up with all sorts of opinions as to who he was. And, by the way, that is the penetrating question today. Who is he? Who is he? Some say he was John the Baptist. Some say, you know, some of the prophets. You know, good man, you ask people today, who is Jesus Christ? You get all sorts of opinions. And Peter got it. And he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What he didn't get was the fact that this wasn't by his own brilliance that he came up with this. Right? He didn't get that. You know that. Uh, and the Lord said to him, Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it. The fact is, it was revelation. And we are in desperate need for not human opinion but for the revelation of the Holy Spirit in bringing illumination as to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, you know that right after that, the Lord began to teach that he was going to be crucified, was going to be buried. And then Peter, because he knew that he had so much information as to what God should do, went and said to Jesus, "Uh, don't, that's never going to happen to you. No, you're, you're not going to be, no, that's never going to happen to you. And It's interesting that in the same breath that he was highly commended, the Lord said, he rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things of God, but the things of men. Well, now we fast forward 30 years later. And when you read first and second Peter, you will realize that Peter now can talk about hardly anything but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the very thing that he had feared would happen now become the most precious themes of his life. That we are redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That the sufferings of Yeshua are some of the most precious things to him in First and 2 Peter. And so I want to just jump in to four points in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And this is end time truth. Tonight, we're going to look at some of the end time unfoldings in the marvelous book of Daniel. And by the way, there's so much understanding that's coming from the book of Daniel. And it is the end times. And the question is, what practically does that mean to me? Well, Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. All right. If the end is near, how do I live? And he gives this four points. Therefore, because the end is near, because Jesus is at hand, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can what? Come on, talk to me. It's early in the morning. Pray. You know what? It wasn't quite what I expected. The end is near. (laughs) The Lord is at hand. How then do I live? Peter says, the first thing is be clear-minded and self-controlled that you can pray. So that you can pray in verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Well, I didn't expect that either, and I'm going to develop that just a little bit. Then he goes on, "...offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, and each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms, if anyone speaks." he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The end is at hand. Then how do we live? He says, you pray. You love lavishly and extravagantly. You open your heart and your home, be given to hospitality without feeling you need to, without grumbling about it. And I was thinking, hospitality, what word is locked in the word hospitality? What do you say? Hospital. And what's a hospital for? To make people well. Do you know that people are desperately lonely out there? Such a sense of alienation. And to be able to be invited into our hearts and into our homes. To be able to be coming into a hospitable church where people smile and they love and they greet people. That, the world is looking for that. And then Paul says, because, I mean, Peter says, because the end is near, you better activate your gift. Every one of you has a gift. The scriptures clearly teach it. And you will remember that in Matthew 24, 25, and 26, he says, if you do not use your gift, you're going to be held accountable because the body cannot grow unless every member is functioning. So let's pull that apart a little bit. The end, verse seven, the end of all things is near. Therefore be clear minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. I was thinking of the word clear-minded, and I thought, Peter, that's kind of interesting. Why clear-minded? What's the opposite of being clear-minded? Huh? Be muddle-minded, right? You, you you got so many thoughts going, and one of the things I sense is that Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. He, and, and what he's trying to say is, don't let your thought life get out of control. Be conscious of where you're going. Gird up... The thoughts, so that you can be clear-minded and also be self-controlled. Why? Because prayer is essential to the work of the kingdom. Now, I want to tell you a few things about prayer. Um, Oh, a while back, I was doing my morning prayers. And finally, I stopped. And I said to the Lord, are you as as bored with my prayers as I am? (laughs) You know what? I really need, I, I don't want to hear someone say, pray, and then have all these funny things going on inside of me. And all of a sudden, I realized he knew I was bored with praying. I mean, it just, it was like fulfilling a religious obligation. If you're a Christian, you'll pray. And so I said to the Lord, are you as bored with my prayers as I am? And I sensed the Lord say yes. I really sensed that. And I And I tell you what, I sat there and I said, Lord, could we do something about that? (laughs) Somehow I've gotten into a religious routine of feeling like I have to fulfill my obligation to pray to you. There's something wrong with that. So I am asking you to revolutionize my time with you in prayer. Well, let me tell you that uh, he has managed to do that in a number of ways. And one of the ways is also by my traveling the nations. And I want you to know that in every nation, there is a call to prayer and to intercession. And I want to, uh, I took some notes while I was gone, but I want to give to you what I felt the Lord say the various ways of praying are, that sometimes we do get boring. I'm sometimes, honestly, now I don't know, maybe you're not like that, but I go into prayer meetings and I think, my gosh, are you even listening to this? I mean, I, it, it, it just seems like, you know, someone has a burden for this and a missile goes off and all of a sudden someone else is praying for Aunt Katie out here and someone else is praying for this knee over here. All valid, but it's like we're shooting missiles in a thousand different directions and I look at my watch and think, good, we only have 10 minutes left. Now something is wrong with that kind of a prayer meeting. That is not, when he says the end is all near, therefore be self-controlled and clear-minded so that you can pray. There's got to be more to prayer than just getting bored with the whole thing and never being sure. Are we being heard? And anyhow, I said to the Lord, part of my discussion was, I said, you know, Lord, there are certain things that I really believed in my prayer and I didn't get them. And anyhow, I felt like you left me with egg on my face. I'm not going to pray for anyone else to get well. Because they die every time I'm praying for healing. And I'm being told something's wrong. I can't tell you the anguish in my heart. And every time we pray by formula and not through relationship, we're going to get egg on our face. We need to know. When we stand over people, what is your mind? What is your heart? How do I pray? And I I could tell you lengthy things in some of that. Where my secretary of eight years, whom I loved, who was absolutely convinced she was going to be healed. And she died. And I knew she was going to die, but she wouldn't let me tell her that. And someone said, if you tell her that, then you're not moving in faith. You know, the whole thing gets ridiculous after a while. And I thought... We don't move by formula or regulation. The hour is so critical that we set our face to pray and that there are things going on in the unseen world, but we need to listen before we speak. Amen? I was in a prayer meeting back, and I have it's in my books many years ago, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Jesus movement, and we met in Sister Selma's little farmhouse. It was back in 1969, the fall of nineteen sixty-nine. We had met for two years. We met every Tuesday morning to pray. And one Tuesday morning, the Lord gave us a prophetic word that went like this. Shh. You know what? I've never been in a meeting where I got a prophetic word like that. Be still. Put your agenda aside. And listen to what is on my heart. He has an agenda today. And that requires that we have a listening ear. All I can tell you that we sat... Though I don't know how many there were, 12, 13 of us. We sat for about 45 minutes in a pregnant silence. And when we finished, every one of us asked for the same thing. Give us the young people in this community. And I won't go into all of that. It's in my book, Watch Out, the Jesus People are Coming. But in, it was, that was in September, this October, November, December, January, February, March. The Holy Ghost fell and brought in hundreds of kids You sort of got in the back door in that, Karen. There was such a move of the Spirit, and it began in a prayer meeting where people laid aside their prayer agenda were quiet, and entered into hearing what the Lord wanted. What is on his agenda today? His agenda is to make your family whole, to make your kids whole, to make your community whole. His agenda is always to pour out his spirit, but he has seasons. And I'll just throw out to you, one of the things I realize that prayer is to be listening prayer. You have a little room here, of ministering to Jesus, and I was thinking, we all need that, because we need to learn how to be still. And while I was sitting in there the other night, it was like the Lord said, well, finally, I got you quiet enough. Maybe I can tell you a few things, huh? To be still, listening prayer. There's scriptural prayer. Daniel is a wonderful example of that, how he reads the scripture. He reads the book of Jeremiah. And based on Jeremiah, he turns to the Lord and he intercedes. He takes the scripture. And by the way, if you're covenant parents, Charles and I, we declare we're covenant parents. We're covenant grandparents. And boy, we move in the morning in an authority when we pray for our family. The Lord said in Isaiah 59, 21, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is on you, my word that is in your mouth will not depart from the mouths and lives of your children. Children or your grandchildren and we in the morning say we take our authority on the covenant promise of the word for my children for the grandchildren for the great-grandchildren we're covenant people so you pray the scriptures i put down the other is conversational prayer You know when I learned this when I was in college, many years ago, and we had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the campus, Queens College, in New York City. And one of the ways it started was we held prayer meetings in the library. Isn't that amazing? You're supposed to be quiet in the library. Well, we prayed with our eyes open. I will never forget. It's a vivid memory. And we sat around the table. There were maybe six of us, and we had our eyes open, and we just talked. And this is how that conversation went. Lord, you see Joe coming in in the red shirt. We're asking you to meet him and win him to yourself. Right across the table, Lord, he's in my math class. Give me a chance. Give me an opportunity to speak to him. And we would just talk. Nobody had any idea. We were just conversation. We were just talking to the Lord. I was telling them that Charles and I just finished watching Fiddler on the Roof. I love Fiddler on the Roof. You know why? Because he has this unusual conversational relationship with the Lord. You know, I mean, he asked the Lord, you know, so did you have to give me five daughters already? You know, I mean, all right, but I take that, right? And and couldn't you make me rich a little bit? Well, no, the old way is okay. And then I love this. I was mentioning it to them last night, you know, how he comes up and he's talking to the Lord as he's taking his cow. And he says, you know, I'm so glad with the chosen people, but could you choose somebody else once in a while? You know, I look at that and I think, dear God, he's a mensch. He's, he's somebody that maybe he doesn't have the full, but they depicted something. That prayer is not this religious activity. It is, a, it is an overflow of someone that you love. And I put down this conversational, this sentence prayer. You see that in the, some of the minor prophets, you know, where they're asked a question, and I believe that's in Nehemiah. And he says, and then I said to the Lord, and then he answered the king. There are, sometimes all you have... Is a sentence prayer. I remember once when we were driving in northern Minnesota, and our car went completely out of control on the icy 38, and we flipped and we flipped, and all of a sudden the car hydroplaned, and all I did was Jesus, 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 and amazingly we hydroplaned over this big obstruction. That we realized afterwards that someone a week and a half before had been killed, hitting, and we were thrown right over into this blanket of snow. We were totally protected. And all I remembered, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The only prayer. Prayer comes out of a result of our relationship with him. And then there are flash prayers. There are also saturating prayers. You know, when the Lord said in Luke 18, men ought always to pray and never to give up. And then he gives the example of a widow woman. And you know what I call her? A Holy Ghost pest. She pestered This judge, huh? She pestered him. And I looked at that and I said, Lord, what are you trying to tell through that? And I felt him say, My people give up too easily. And then we develop theology. I mean, I was told back in the 70s, once you pray, you ought to praise. Otherwise, it's a sign of unbelief. Well, I tried that. That didn't work. And I went, Lord, that's, again, rules. I want to know. And one of the things I learned from that, that men ought always to pray and never give up, is the fact. Finally, I said to him, okay, I'm going to pest you about this issue until you tell me to be still. And he said, and then you go into praise. And I want to encourage you, be creative. This is a relationship. The end times require a people who are not moving by rules, regulations, or books that they read, or because they have to. But he is so real to us that we are able to communicate with him. We're able to find out what his burdens are. And then there is prayer in the spirit. When you can't, when, and may you go back and forth in that. You pray in tongues. You pray with the mind. Now, what did I find when I went to Israel? I found this time, and I'm there usually at least every year. And one of the things I'm finding is, yes, they are preparing for war. I have mentioned that, that everybody has a bomb shelter. Everybody has a gas mask. Uh, it, is, it is an awesome privilege to sit with the leaders and listen to what they are hearing And one of the things we are seeing is prayer houses being lifted up all over from one end of Israel to the other. We were in Tiberias. We were in a home where they regularly worship and praise we were in the King of Kings in Jerusalem, and they have dedicated their whole 14th floor. And the, the, uh, the view is spectacular. Groups come in from all over the world just to pray. You can see the view of Jerusalem. There is praise and prayer in Tel Aviv uh, from Dugit Avi Mazrake, purchased on the 11th floor. And it was filthy. It was a a garbage dump. And the Lord said, that's where I want you. I want you to pray over the city of Tel Aviv. And so they're up on the 11th floor. And we spent time up there for two and a half hours interceding for that place. And Brother Avi said we just recently had a prayer meeting with the Arab and the Israeli pastors. We spent quite a bit of time up here praying. And he said two of the pastors had received dreams and visions of Tel Aviv being massively hit with missiles. And they stood there before the windows, and I said to some of them, what do you think? And they said, it's going to happen. And now the challenge we have is how do we prepare our people for that which they're going to walk through. It was a privilege to be with them. It was a very different circumstance talking about these things in comparatively safe America when you know that our brothers and sisters are facing things all over the world. But one of the main things they realized, their weapon of prayer and intercession— and it is increasing. Ashdod, their apartments, they're opening up to have a time of prayer. Beersheba uh, with Avnabaski is opening up his whole home, and they are consistently meeting for prayer, fasting, worship, intercession. What an hour to be alive, and what do we do? We say, Lord, it's the end times. We are asking you, Pray through us. I want to quickly just tell you about our elections. I had mentioned that to the women uh, yesterday, and I want to just mention it again to you. When I woke up along with hundreds and thousands of believers on Wednesday morning, we woke up utterly depressed. And if you had been part of the prayer movement that was praying for our elections, I looked and realized in Maryland we lost everything we prayed for. And I had never experienced that intense amount of prayer these elections had more prayer 24 hour north south east west uh, on on the mall by dc was a big tent and for 40 days groups came in there was relentless prayer and I, it was i've never seen anything like that And so I wake up Wednesday morning along with the whole other part of the nation. And we're getting emails from different places saying what happened. And I came before the Lord. I sat there and I said, what happened? We lost same-sex issues. We lost the abortion issue in Maryland. We lost the gambling issue. We lost the whole sex education issue. What happened? Nothing we asked happened. What did you do with all those prayers? You know what? We have to find that out. Because if we do not ask that question, we will have a point of disappointment within us that will cause us not to pray as emphatically the next time around. And since there was so much prayer going up, and since his word says he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, there was a diligent seeking. So we need to know what happened. And you know what? The Lord said nothing. And I was getting emails from all over the country, people saying, what happened? And one of the things I don't like is this sometimes rationalization to just not really own up to some of the issues. You know, the fact is we prayed. All right. So I asked him one day, I cried the next day, along with many of the people in our whole congregation. And uh, on the fourth day, I said, I'm still waiting to hear what happened. What do you do? ...with all of those prayers. People prayed. They fasted. They believed. And that morning, Revelation 5 came to me. How many of you know Revelation 5? Revelation 5 is where uh, it's an extraordinary moment in heaven... ...where John uh, weeps because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. Uh, There is silence in heaven... And then one is found worthy to open the scroll. And as they begin to praise in Revelation 5, there's something that they see. And it's called the harp and the bowl. And the harp represents what? The praise and worship. And you know what? All over the country and all over the earth, people are establishing the harp and bowl ministry, which is that you worship and the bowl is the golden bowl and and John tells us what it is. It is the prayers of God's people, right? It's the prayers. It contains the prayers of God's people. And so Revelation 5 became vivid. And as I just said to the I was, I just felt his presence. And it was like I saw the golden bowl in my mind's eye. And the Lord said to me, the bowl is yet, yet not full. And I said, what, what does that mean? You're looking for more? (laughs) And this is what I will give you, which I felt I heard, and not only I, but across the country. I felt the Lord say, if I would have given you what you wanted, the church would have relaxed. And I am not after elections. Elections. I am after an outpouring of my Holy Spirit, where it's not simply legislation, but it is the hearts that are changed. And if you know anything on the history of revival, you will know through the first awakening, the second great awakening, through Charles Finney, through the early 1900s, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit changed whole communities. And I cannot tell you, as I sat there, I felt the presence of the Lord encompass me and say, you You get the people to pray as never before. Because I am after not simply an election. I am after an outpouring of my Holy Spirit. And we are living in times and seasons where it is time to do it again. I Charles and I, in these past 62 years, have experienced every major revival in this nation. And I want you to know you are ruined after you experience the glory of his presence. Oh, my gosh. You were ruined for anything else? When you see people saved and converted and and healed and, uh, my, oh, my. I, I think, dear God, do it again. We simply don't want emotionalism. But we want you to come. And to bring repentance into the hearts of your people. If my people, not the government, right? You know that. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face, will turn from their wicked ways. There are four things he asks us to do. And that is first humble ourselves hey that's a big deal and i you know what i'm convinced of that when we don't humble ourselves he will so i would recommend that we do it right i, I you know why do i tell you that because we've experienced it we've experienced the arrogance of youth in which we were god's answer to the universe huh <laughs> oh i have often shared this i have a special heart for our young And I watched them. I watched them with their anointing and their charisma. And see, this is where, again, your white hair gets you, you know, you can get away with some stuff. And I was with a worship leader. And I've seen what happened to some of our leaders in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 70s, who were anointed, who were gifted, but who didn't have the character to go along with it. And so we put them in places of leadership only to have arrogance get hold of their heart. And they in one day tore down work that some of them built by charisma and gifting for 30 years. Hear me. I believe God is going to do something for humbling his people. And I was with this wonderful worship leader. Oh, he was so great. He was so good. And he was so young. And uh, we had just a real rapport. I think he he felt the fact that I really did care. And when we left, I put my arm around them and I said, I have a word for you. And he said, yes. I said, if I come back 10 years from now and you've become arrogant and blown your anointing, I'm going to slap you all around. (laughs) And he said to me, yes, mama. (laughs) Listen, we've seen it before. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, fast, pray, get down on our faces before him, we can do nothing without him. You know, I mean, we've tried. Oh, my gosh, we have tried to do it without him. We thought we could. But then ended again with egg on our face. My people. Are called by name, my name will humble themselves and pray. And I just led you through. I don't know how the Lord is going to lead you, but please be creative. Don't be boring in your prayer life. And if you are, would you call it? Same thing with our corporate prayer. I think, God, and when He comes, it becomes electric. Now, that doesn't mean that every prayer meeting is just, uh, you know, you're floating up there. There's some discipline. That comes, And there's sometimes you got to break through because even as we are learning from Daniel, what the angel of the Lord said to Daniel, Daniel, from the first day that you set your mind to understand, I was dispatched to you, but there was interference. And I think, what in the world is that all about? There was warfare in the heavenlies and the angel said, I couldn't get through because the prince of Persia resisted me. But then Michael came. And now I'm here. And you know what I look at that and I think, "Oh God." And I sense the Lord saying, "I want you to understand" That you're not fighting against flesh and blood. That's more than a scripture. That's a reality. And have an insight as to what's going on in the world and in the unseen world. So there are times in which prayer is like pushing, pushing, pushing. And we must endure and persevere. But we need to know what are we dealing with. And the Lord is very willing to give us that. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray, and seek my face. Now, what's the difference between seek my face and prayer? Huh? What is it? Listening? Do you know that David was a seeker of the face? When you seek his face, you you even go beyond the discussion part. You, you just want him. What is it David saying? One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. God, let us, beyond the written page, let us seek your face. I have to give you just one quick story. I traveled with Brownsville, during that revival period in 95 and 96. And we traveled all over the world. I was, there were four of us women that went together. And we ended up in Manchester, England. And they said to us one afternoon, would you share your testimony on your experiences in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And it was an afternoon meeting. Everybody was very tired. And uh, I, I could tell as soon as we began to share, Charles and I were born in a season of revival. 1948, 49, 50, 51, 52 was a season of revival. Three major outpourings of the spirit were taking place back then. There was an outpouring in Argentina, there was an outpouring in Battleford, Canada, and there was the Hebrides the Hebrides in Scotland. And I was just in Scotland last week. And I was so excited because I feel like something from Scotland. And by the way, do you know how, who led that Hebrides revival? Who got it started? Um, of course he did, but who cooperated? Two old ladies, the Smith sisters. One was 82 and 84. Yay! <laughs> hey, hey, I look at that and I think one was blind, the other was arthritic. You know, and they looked around and saw that there were only white heads in the church. And those Smith sisters said, that's not, we're not going to settle for that. And the Lord gave them a promise out of Isaiah 44. I will pour out my spirit upon the thirsty. I will pour out my spirit upon your descendants, your children. And they got their teeth into that. And boy, I you, you can get my husband's book, Floods Upon the Dry Ground, and hear what happened. At any rate. It was during those outpourings. Now, I want to give you a principle, even what happens in intercession. We were ministering with... All right, so before I do that, I have to finish my story in Manchester. Karen, keep me on track. I, I, when we were in Manchester, we were sharing our different experiences. And when Brenda Kilpatrick uh, shared, she was the first one that came into a whole other dimension... Of the revival power of the Lord. By the way, you know, the first time I went down there was in 1995. Charles and I went down for a pastor's conference, and there were over 1,000 pastors, many of them three-piece suits. And the Holy Ghost came and, you know, some really ridiculous things happened. And, I, and, I, and by the way, I'm not into some of that stuff. And so the Lord had to do something with me to shake me up a little bit. But at any rate, besides that, I remember when we went down there that I saw up front. I was sitting in the back and I saw up front someone that carried the glory of God. Have you ever seen people that just they're carriers of his presence? It was just something, and I saw this blonde woman, and she was going, oh, Jesus, Jesus. And at the end of the meeting, I ran to her, and I put my head in her lap, and I said, you don't know me. I'm older than you. I've been a pastor's wife longer than you, but I need what you have. And I said, I want you to lay hands on me, and whatever you have met in Jesus... I want that. And Brenda Kilpatrick put her hands on my head, and little did I know that he was going to link us for the nations after that. I mean, incredible things, right? But at any rate, we're sharing in Manchester. And as we are sharing, the anointing grew stronger and stronger, so strong that people were all over the building, and they were just drawn into the building. And I knew, I know what happens to Brenda and to Lila when the anointing comes on them. They can barely sit in their chair. And I remember that as we were sharing. Of the presence of the Lord and you're transformed that as you behold him in his glory, you are changed from one degree of glory to another. You see him. You seek his face. Well, it was such an extraordinary time. They ended up just slipping right off the chairs. And I'm usually the one that carries everybody because I don't do things like that normally. And so I, I, we were there. And the Holy Spirit just fell. The goodness of the Lord leads to repentance and the repentance that came as a result of that meeting. At any rate, a year and a half ago, I get an email from a couple who were in northern India. And they wrote me and they said, we went to this little village in India so discouraged that we turned the TV on, and it was amazing. They had this, and they had the one, I, I don't know if it was Sky TV, one of the Christian stations, and he wrote, and this was Dennis. He wrote, and he said, we, they had that afternoon meeting, and he said, we want you to know that the anointing came right through the TV, and we fell on our faces in the revival presence of the Lord. If my people who, and by the way, don't settle for mediocrity don't settle to be apathetic. This is an hour for a radical passion before the Lord. And I think Lord at 74 and 76, we're more hungry for your presence than we have ever been. And I have a deal with him. I don't want to go home until I see once again, the glory of his presence. He said, I will fill this earth with my glory. And I said, Lord, if Simeon could say, don't take me home until my eyes see the salvation of the Lord. I'm saying, don't you, take me home until i see your glory manifest listen he's looking for friends some of us are not bold enough in his presence at any rate i get back quickly because i'm almost there (laughs) and i'm going to quickly take those other points but when i often wondered i knew we were converted in a season of revival and i have shared this this is very strategic Uh, Derek Prince wrote a book, Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. If you have not read it, you need to. Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. He makes the statement that the pen of history is in the hands of a praying church. That's pretty powerful stuff. The pen of history is in the hands of a praying church. And we were ministering with him in the 70s down in the Tennessee, Georgia camps. And as we were having tea together, which is very good for Englishmen, and as we were having tea together, we he wanted to know our experience. And we said to him, you know, we were born again, 1950, 51, and we often wondered how we got in. Like, who was praying for us? What? what? And I know he always prays, and I know it was his prayers. But Derek made a statement that I want to emphasize on intercession. He said, you and Charles were born in a season of revival. Revival praying crosses borders in the heavenlies. And he said, there was so much prayer going up out of the Hebrides, going up out of Canada, going up out of our uh, the Argentina, if you've never read about the Argentine revival back in 48, 49, we had Dr. Miller with us, who was one of the key components in that. And when he came, he carried the presence of the Lord. He's in glory now. And he almost was in glory. Then he would, we would go back and forth and I'd look at this old frail man. And I said to the pastor next to me, I said, you know, he's got one foot here one foot over there. I called him a Holy ghost storyteller, but there was such a presence of the Lord, that rested on him. That I just cried sitting there. And when he had an altar call, this man who who broke through the heavens and saw things that made my tongue hang out. When the altar call came, I was the first one up there, and I knelt and I was crying. And and dear brother Miller came and he put his hands around my face and he said, "And what do you want?" I said, "I don't know. I don't know. I, all I know is I am so hungry." And he just laid his little bony hands on my head and said, Lord, you've put a vision in her for revival. And Derek said to us, you were born in a season of revival. And when intercession goes into the heavenlies, it crosses all borders. Intercession builds bridges between the nations. And when God begins to take that golden bowl." that is being filled with the intercessions of God's people. When he takes that golden bowl and dumps it over, he goes through the whole earth, and he says, I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha. And he said, you happen to be one of the gotchas. As he went through the earth, and I went, oh God, may my prayers impact the nations. Help me build bridges through intercession. Ah, so much more can be said. I, I, their prayer, you will find yourself coming under an anointing of prayer increasingly. And we, I just have to tell you that when we were in Scotland, they are establishing the Ministry of Hope, houses of prayer everywhere. And we had an opportunity to be with some of the prince and princesses of the past 30, 40 years of intercession, godly men and women. And when we asked them, what is God doing in Scotland? They said he's establishing houses of prayer everywhere. It's taken us 30 years, but you cannot find a village or a hamlet where there are not prayer meetings going on, where there's a cry for Israel and there's a cry for this nation and there's a cry for the nations of the world. God is moving in prayer. These are the last days. How then do we live? We are self-controlled, clear-minded to live. And then he says, you are to love one another deeply. Two stories on that one, huh? My daughter, who called this morning, and by the way, our children, (laughs) they're so neat. Most of them are in the ministry with us. That's a blessing, and I won't even go into all of that. That is a blessing and a challenge. But when Diana, who is one of our pastors, when she was four years old, and we were in the middle of the Jesus movement, we had nine Jesus kids, hippie kids move in with us. That grace is over, isn't it, Lord? Like, oh, I mean, they they lived with us, and 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 we were busy serving them morning, noon, and night. And one day, I was going to get some more food to serve all these wonderful kids. And Diana tapped me on the shoulder, and she asked me a question that changed my life. She said to mommy, "Who do you love more, Jesus or me?" What was she feeling? Huh? I remember. I felt the cry of her little spirit, and I pulled the car over, and I thought of what I had been taught. God first, husband second, family third, ministry fourth. And I went, well, that won't work here. Chuck that thing. And I pulled her over, and if ever you need... The word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, you need it raising your family. You need it in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. And I pulled Jenny, I pulled Diana over, and I held her, and I said, Lord, and out of my mouth came these words. Sweetheart, the more I love Jesus, the more I love you. And I went, yes! (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that. And all of a sudden I saw it, and love isn't a piece of pie that you give half here and a quarter there. Love is a quality of life, and the only way we can love one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins and offenses, the only way is to be saturated in his love and allow him to enlarge our capacity to love. I had another experience before Emmanuel's church, and I won't go into all of that except to say before we celebrate 30 years of the history of our church. And before that, we went through a horrendous, horrendous time in the body of Christ. So much so that I said to the Lord, I give you your church back. You take care of it. I'm out of here. If you are worth your salt in the kingdom, there will be times in which your faith is hitting a brick wall. There will be times in which you are hurt by the very people that you have been giving your life to. And I remember for eight months, the Lord allowed us to wallow around in self-pity. And then I remember the morning where he, and you know what? He really does some interesting things. During those eight months, he so wooed our hearts that I just fell more and more in love with him. And I thought, isn't this great? We're not going anywhere. We don't need anybody else. Just you, me, or just us. Aren't you happy with that? Well, one morning, everywhere I read, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. How Peter knew this. And I remember that morning in 1982, I said to the Lord, do I have to? Is that part of this whole thing? can I just love you without loving these people that are annoying at times? Hey, come on. If you've been, I mean, you know what? We've been in the ministry 60 years. So, you know, there's a lot of things you experience. And I remember the Lord saying, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. And that morning I wept my heart out. And I said, darn it, anyhow, I do love you. And if that's part of the bargain then you have to put it within my heart. Above all, because it's the end time, pray, love one another deeply. We can't do that apart from being saturated in the love of our Father, of positioning ourselves in the love of our Father. Listen, we have 65 different nations in our congregation. We're between three and 4,000 people. And every now and then they drive me crazy. A little Mashugana. but I love them. I, I don't know where it's come from. I turn around and look at all of these nations and I think I love them. Even when they act a little ornery, I love them. And we're able to go to them and say, look, we love you. Would you get your act together? And that's the other thing you have advantages of having white hair. Because you can tell them that. Love one another deeply. We're living in an hour when men are covenant breakers. When they easily break out of relationships. Peter says the end is all, is that in hand. And he says, love one another. Be given to hospitality and utilize your gifts. And I want to close with this scripture. I want you to look with me to 1 Peter. Just turn over to 1 Peter and look at what he says in verse 8. When we were in Israel, we were at the place they believe was the restoration of Peter. Oh, it was a beautiful place, right on the Galilee. And and we went into a grove and we looked at the Galilee. If that wasn't the place, it was pretty near there where Peter was restored. And you remember that Peter had to fail. I told the women yesterday, God can only use failures. Aren't you relieved? He can only use failures. You know why? Because there's an arrogance about the human spirit that by our own selves, there is no real humility. And sometimes we have to fall flat on our face and then realize that I can do nothing without him. And when Peter was told, when the Lord told all the disciples that you will all leave me and forsake me, Peter knew he wouldn't do that. And he had to correct the Lord again and say, you know, Lord, they may all leave you, but not I. I'm ready to die with you. You know, I wondered, the Lord looked at him and thought, Peter, you know, not your heart. We don't know our own hearts. I remember the morning that the Lord spoke to me in a worship service and said, can I trust you? And I went, Why? Trust me. It's me working on trusting you. What? And the Lord said, can I trust you not to fall apart on me when things get rough? Can I trust you in the dark night of the soul to still stand and love me when you don't feel me? When everything around you looks confused. And I'll never forget that moment. It was a holy moment. And I said to the Lord, I don't know if you can trust me. I don't know what's in my heart. But make me trustworthy that no matter what comes down, you will find Charles and myself standing by your grace. And boy, did he take us through the mill. Well, I won't even go into that. Except to say that Peter had to fail. And I often wonder what he thought when he stood and he said to the guys, even after Jesus was alive, He said, I'm going fishing. I'm just going fishing. He got, you know, we were in the Galilee. I love the Galilee. Gene, you have to come with us. uh, We go on the boat. uh, All the stories he told from Galilee. And you know that, what happened that morning, right? How Jesus, they're, they're fishing, and they try desperately, and they get nothing. By the way, that is all designed to bring a memory back to Peter. And that memory was from Luke chapter 5, where early in their career, they had been fishing and caught nothing. Then the Lord tells them to put the net on the other side. And so Jesus is standing on the shore. It's early in the morning, and he says, lads, have you caught anything? No, put the net on the other side. And all of a sudden, memory is stirred. I remember being told to do that once before. You know what happened that the net became so full. And by the way, that's a whole other message. But the net broke in Luke 5. It didn't break here. There's a reason for that. But we will you can find that out. But at any rate, of John discerns it is Jesus. And, you know, I pray that you will go beyond the superficial, that there will be such a hunger to know the heart of the Father, to know his ways, And I just will end with this. I remember, and with this scripture on love, I remember standing in our camp in northern Minnesota uh, back in the 70s. And I happened to be the cook for that week, smelled from onions and celery and everything else. And as I walked across the campground and went to our meeting place And it was filled with Jesus' people, filled with Jewish believers in the early 70s. Oh, what a time that was. And and everything was vibrating. We always felt the thing might collapse. It did now. But it just was up and down. And as I went, the worship drew me in, and there was no place to sit. And I stood against the back wall. I even remember what I had on, and I was smelling from onions. And I remember standing there, and I heard the Lord say, Tell my people I love to cook breakfast for them. I thought I'd been spending too much time in the kitchen. I mean, isn't that weird? And as, as I stood there, that just came over. Tell my people I love to cook breakfast for them. And as I leaned against the back wall, I realized that when Elijah was discouraged and he ran for all he was worth, and leave it to a Jezebel to do that, right? He ran for all he was worth, and the Lord woke him up. The angel of the Lord said, come and eat. And here... What does Jesus say? He says to them, Lads, come and eat breakfast. I stood on the, I I wasn't, that whole scripture was alive to me. I said, That is so weird. You are about to establish your kingdom with a whole new dimension. You're looking to these 12 men and they're out fishing. How could you be cooking breakfast for them? If I were you, I would probably stand on the shore and say, you guys, I gave you three years of my life. It is time to get on with the work of the kingdom. Get in here. <laughs> and I, I, this was my conversation with him. And I said, at least if you didn't do that, I would be on my face interceding that God would bring them to repentance, that they went back to fishing when they should be given to fishes of men. And clearly I heard the Lord say, oh, I already did that. I had already prayed for them. It was a done deal. Now they needed me to cook breakfast for them. Huh? You know what? We serve a God who knows how to restore, who knows how to bring fresh life. And then when he takes a walk with Peter, he says to him three times, and we can't get into all the different words and everything, but do you love me? And finally Peter says, you know it all. You know that I love you. And that's when he said, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. Now Peter's coming to the end of his life. And what does he sense is the most important thing? Verse 8 of 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with all inexpressible and glorious joy. One translation says you're filled with laughter, with singing, and with dancing. Although you do not see him. And why don't you just stand with me? You've been very gracious. Although you do not see him, you love him. You love him. And the end of it all is do you radically, passionately love him. And so we present ourselves to him. These are the end days. You cannot look at world events. You cannot look at the scriptures. You cannot listen to some of the prophetic voices. You cannot hear his word for yourself. And, and Peter says the end is at hand. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled that you may pray. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer one another hospitality without grumbling. Be a warm, gracious, embracing people. And use the gift you've been given. Because shortly we will be in his presence. The heavens will contain him no longer. And he will come with the shout of the archangel with the last trump. And every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And in that day, I want to have no regrets that I did not obey when I heard his voice. We love him. We bless him. We honor him. And we say before you this morning, Father, make us a trustworthy people. That we can walk through these days. Grant to this congregation, as you're doing all over the earth, grant an anointing of prayer and intercession. May we be a praying, worshiping people. Give us a sensitivity and a listening ear. Deliver us from prayer ever becoming boring or humdrum. Father, we ask you for a baptism of the creativity of the Holy Ghost. We ask you, Lord, that you give to us that which Peter just says. That as we love you, as we believe in you, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So I declare your blessing upon these precious ones. Thank you, Father, for the truth that is in their hearts. And we ask that the spirit of wisdom and revelation might increasingly be upon them in their understanding of you. Bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Amen.